Unless you're an aspiring supermodel preparing for fashion week, you probably don't think about how you walk. None of us remember learning how to walk, of course. As adults, not too many people train to walk better or search the internet for tips on how to improve our walking form. I mean, it's pretty simple. When we walk, we put one foot out in front of us at the heel. Our weight shifts forward and the heel of the back foot comes up before the toes of the front foot leave the ground. The back foot swings forward and lands heel first, and then you repeat. Once we discover running and decide we want to get better at it, the idea of how we run becomes very important to us. We don't all run the same. Some people land on their heels, some on their toes, and the rest are in between. Everyone looks different when they run. When I'm driving around my hometown and I see a runner on the sidewalk, I recognize my running's friends form even before I can see their faces. Some runners stand up stiff and tall. Some have a distinguishing head bounce. Others swing their arms like they're conducting an orchestra. So why do we all mostly walk the same, but run so differently? Could we learn to run as effortlessly as we walk? Does it have anything to do with landing on our heels first? Welcome to The Planted Runner. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and my mission is to help you improve your running, your mindset, and your life with science-backed training and plant-based nutrition. On today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Matt Minerd about why he thinks most runners will actually run faster when they heel strike. You'll learn why the way we walk has a lot to teach us about how we run, about the part of your running form that's way more important than where you land, and how a simple trick using something you probably have lying around the house can give you the feedback you need to learn how to improve your running today. Matt is a doctor of physical therapy and runs the company Human Movement Optimization, which encompasses his Learn to Run brand and continuing education courses. With a passion for human movement and fitness, he is driven to help others learn how to move their bodies strategically and efficiently to reduce the risk of injury and increase longevity. I think you'll find his passion for helping runners like you is clear in this conversation. He's also got some great free resources for you that I'll mention at the end of the show, which are included in the show notes, and I'll share one of mine as well. And of course, you'll want to be sure to stay tuned all the way to the end of the episode where I'll share another mental strength minute to fortify your mind in 60 seconds or less. And now here's my conversation with Matt, my nerd. Welcome to the Plates and Runner, Matt. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I am so happy to have you. So you are a physical therapist and you're passionate about running mechanics and running form. So we are going to get in deep about those things today. So first of all, what is good running form or, or is there good running form? Yes, that's a good question. I think depends on who you ask, but I've done a lot of deep thinking <laughs> since the pandemic <laughs> hit. I like was forced to ever like think you know something about one particular thing and then you study it even more every day for years. That's kind of what happened with the pandemic. Like I wasn't really deep diving into the mechanics too much, a little bit, but then I just got obsessed over it. And that's kind of my mm. personality for good or for bad. 
But I started thinking, (laughs) yeah, I started thinking if running is about moving forward, if the point of running is moving forward from a biomechanical standpoint and from a physics standpoint, we really can deem efficient if it's going towards forward movement or inefficient. And I've talked before, I've heard you say, like, I like talking about paying on the principle, like moving forward is paying on the principle, moving up, jumping is paying on the interest. If I'm Mm. landing or loading in such a way that's slowing me down, that's paying on the interest. And I like it from a physical therapy standpoint, from a safety aspect, but most people like it actually does make you faster too. being more efficient, makes you faster. And I've heard you say, you don't want to leave, you know, money on the table, like all the work, the energy that you're putting in from a muscular standpoint too, we just want to make sure everything that we're doing is going towards forward movement. So that's the goal. And if we really think about it as far as arrows, the world in terms of arrows, gravity is always going down. It's always Mm -hmm. pulling us towards the earth. Our muscles are what create all movement, all things movement. And so in order to go forward, we push back. So the two things are taking the jump out of running and having the lean, the appropriate lean, that we can slow down the least amount, no matter what, mm-hmm. unless you're jumping straight up and down in the air, you can't land directly under your center of mass without slowing yourself down. So it's how can we slow yourself down the least amount? So bottom line, efficient mechanics has to do with all things moving forward. Okay, perfect. We will get into the lean in just a little bit, but the real reason I wanted to have you on the show is to talk all about the most evil thing in running, which is heel striking. (laughs) Heel striking, heel striking has been demonized forever. Although nowadays some people are giving it a little wiggle room. And, um, I, uh, am so interested in what you have to say about it because you actually are a proponent of heel striking, which is amazing because most people say either don't do it, or if you do it, you're not so bad, but, but nobody out there is saying actually go ahead and do it. So tell us about this. Yes. This is a (laughs) hot topic. People will either love it or hate it. But at the end of the day to truly to know me, I'm not trying to change anybody. And if Mm -hmm. someone's running a certain way and they're happy and they're healthy, that's fine. I didn't get into physical therapy and doing what I do to try to change people and make them a certain way. No. So I just want to make sure I get that out there. If you land on your elbow for some reason and you're happy (laughs) and healthy, go for it. But I've been doing a lot of research and reverse engineering and kind of thinking like a scientist of experiments. Mm -hmm. But basically with, with landing, I got to the point where I thought too about walking and running, the, the, the direction's the same. The goal right. is going forward. And so when we go faster at faster speeds, walking, we're both feet are on the ground at all times, or there's no time of flight. There's always some contact with the ground with, with walking. There becomes a speed. It's usually around four and a half to five miles per hour, where it actually becomes more efficient to leave the ground, but to go horizontal, not to go up. So we try to Mm -hmm. capture more distance between each step. And so when we walk, we don't land on our midfoot. We don't land on our forefoot. When we walk, it's natural. We land heel toe. When we're going forward at faster speeds, I found there's two things. In order to land on your midfoot or your forefoot, either we're jumping and 90% of people, 95%, if without training, it's a learned skill to be able to leave the ground and go purely horizontal. Like if we look at somebody's head height, it it should stay relatively 
level. If they're going up and down, then they land. The only way to land on your midfoot or forefoot is to jump. You push down through the ground and you go up. And while jumping isn't bad, it's just interest. It's paying on the interest. It's not necessary for forward movement. The other thing is if I'm, this is where it really comes down to, in order to land on your midfoot or your forefoot, you shorten up the stride. Like you actually have to, mm-hmm. we do want to bring your foot back and not land and load, but there's two separate things. Landing on the heel and making contact, but then when we load through it, like there's a lot that happens because the body's translating forward. There's a lot that happens between when the foot first makes contact with the ground and then when all my 200 pounds is transferred through my foot to the ground. Like there's a, it doesn't just zero 200 pounds, you know, there's right. a, there's a, there's a progression and so if you practice walking, if you think about it, try walking and not landing on your heel. It, it's strange, right? Yeah, it would very look weird. Like, yeah, it would look like you're walking on ice. Walking on ice is where we really, or when people get older and they lose their balance, they don't have as much trust and control to take a bigger step. So they end up taking smaller steps and staying within their base of support. It's like they're walking on ice, which... If we think about running in terms of compounding and and 1,000 steps, 10,000 steps over the course of several miles, if we're shortening up our our step length, we're going to have to make up for it by either taking more steps to get there, increasing your your step rate even higher than we need to. But um, the biggest thing is just we're leaving, we're paying on the interest. If you're landing on anything besides your heel, you're actually paying on the interest. So those are the two things is if you're doing it, you have to jump, which we don't need to jump to run and, or you're shortening up and you're bringing your uh, foot closer to you and losing out on a little bit of a length or distance. Okay. Okay. So I've, I've got a couple of uh, things to say about that, uh, about the bounce and about um, midfoot strikers. So You know, uh, some and and the best way to to talk about this is to talk about elites. So um, Ryan Hall is one of the great is the greatest American uh, marathoner, and he is known for having a super bouncy stride. So obviously he's paying enough, you know, interest. But still, it's it doesn't matter because he's so fast. And then, of course, uh, Iliad Kipchoge is literally the best marathoner who has ever lived. And so he must have the best form. And I have watched um, him in slow motion, many, many videos. I just did a podcast analyzing his form. And he has a beautiful midfoot strike. And, you know, to say that he's wasting energy is kind of a tough sell. So we, what we see when we watch people run, we don't see under the hood, just like a car. You don't know what's under the hood. What kind of engine is it? Just because how they move, the, the kinematics versus kinema- kinetics. Kinematics is what we see and how we move. But the true, like how much uh, oxygen, VO2 max, how much strength per push. And we got to remember, we're just talking about when we land, it's just a part of the foot. Where's the rest of the body? You know, it's not just like that part of the foot, but uh, he does. If you look, as I was looking at this again the other day, just to take a look, the thing is, everyone's amazing. I mean, those professionals, they're running at speeds. I think his 159 pace was like a four minute and 30 some second per mile. Yep. At that speed, at that clip. Yeah, you're you're taking you're covering a lot of ground. And if you look right before he leaves the ground, my thing is like for most of us runners, you know, push with the tush, use your glutes 
to push the ground backwards to move forward and not pushing down into the ground because otherwise would go up. He's been running for transportation his whole life. Like running, your body will adapt. You could have any mechanics you want. You could have the worst possible mechanics. As long as you go slow and steady and let your body adapt to it, you can have awful or inefficient mechanics and be okay. But we're talking about the the 0.0001% of the world that I'm sure if we were to look at his VO2 max, if we were to look at his lung capacity, if we were to look at his muscle density and fast twitch fibers and slow twitch fibers, and he may get a little bit more by having some more hang time, he can use his calves in the propulsion propulsion phase where most of us, we get calf pain, we get Achilles issues, we get knee pain. He's found a way to just do it over probably longer than I've been alive to adapt to it. So but at the end of the day, it's working for him. It's working for him. So, uh, but we could also, like you saw or mentioned, I saw a video where there was a bunch of guys paced at the same speed and they had different postures and different landings. And so it's like, how can they then all be at the same speed with these different types of mechanics? If we looked under the hood, we could see like there's differences. We can't see as far as mechanics, but you might have somebody, two people running at 10 miles per hour, a six minute per mile pace. And one of them is working really hard. They're working at a higher VO2 max because they're not as efficient. They're having to overcome that interest when it comes to, to moving forward. But comparing to the greats is, is we can learn a lot from them, but also like same with golfers. There's so many different types of swings. At the end of the day, we're trying to hit the ball forward. You can see all sorts of different types of mechanics with it. And that's where it is somewhat individualized based off of postures and anatomy and, and limb length and muscle twitch. There's, there are different factors with it. But as far yeah. as we can't just say because he's the fastest ever that his form is absolutely perfect. It's for him. It's perfect. It's working great. And if we were to try to change it and he spent decades kind of building up to that point, um, so yeah, that's my, that's my thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's, that is, that's awesome. That is awesome. So, you know, he, using him still as an example, he spent decades, you know, running that way and that is what works for him. So what about the rest of us? So heel strikers should stay heel strikers, midfoot strikers. I'm a midfoot striker. I've never tried to be. That's just the way I've always run. I don't know why. It just am. <laughs> and it works for me. So, you know, so when we say you should be a heel striker, how do, how do we do that? Like you're not telling me to switch to heel striking, right? There is no hood like parenthood. When you meet a fellow parent, you just kind of get each other on a whole nother level. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta. I'm a former CNN journalist, mom of three, including twins, and host of That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast. I interview change makers on their life lessons, legacy, and superpower of intuition, aka their mom sense and dad sense. I've had some pretty amazing parents on my show. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Episodes release every Thursday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Join my tribe at thatstotalmomsense.com and follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta. I'm thrilled to be on this journey with you. So what I'm saying is the the heel, there's a time where it's okay to land on the heel and there's a time where it's not. It all has to do with our posture. All has to do with our posture and our lean. If you'll see everybody, if I'm watching somebody on the side view and they're running forward 
if I see their torso straight vertical, if I think of like a hand of a clock, if they're at a 12 o'clock posture, right. if they're moving forward, but they're leaning back because they're upright, we're forced to land more midfoot or forefoot because we're leaning back. That's the only way to really land in front of us like that. So if you look, when it comes to heel striking, the only time where it is not advantageous is if somebody's leaning forward and when they're leaning is at the hips, not at the ankles. Right. And what I mean by that is if you saw me in standing and if I lean forward, just like doing a squat or a deadlift, and if I were to have like a stick in front of me just to keep me up, if I'm hinging forward at the hips and I pick that stick up, I'm not going anywhere. But if I lean at the ankles, hinging at the ankles, the hankle, if I lean forward, hinging at the ankles, if I pick that stick up, then I am going to fall forward. So if I'm hinging at the hips and then I land on my heel, if I'm keeping my weight back, I'm forced to land in front of me and slow me down. Mm -hmm. So landing on the heel, if somebody's leaning forward at the hips, I call that a hippie. If they're landing at the hips, they're hippie. If they're straight up, they're stuck up endearingly, lovingly. Um, but that's the way is it, landing on the heel is okay if, as long as we keep that appropriate lean. It depends on who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to a coach or a physical therapist or a runner themselves, I'll use different terminology. If mm -hmm. I'm working with like a running coach, I'll say if you were to watch somebody from the side view when they run, uh, they're running straight, if you look at their torso, we want this 1230 posture, 1230 posture. It's not 12 o'clock. It's not one o'clock to hinge at the hips to get to one o'clock. It's 1230. And that's something that's mm. trained is the proper lean of leaning at the ankles. It's not natural to do that because in life, when I lean at the ankles, I fall forward. And right. we have these built-in mechanisms. If I'm standing and you tell me to lean forward, the first thing I'm going to do is pull my hips back. I've got my base of support. Imagine like I'm on ice. And I start leaning forward to compensate for that forward leaning. I'm going to move my hips back, but then my hips are back. My center mass is back. My weight's back. So I'm forced to, to kickstand. I call it land. Don't kickstand. So I talk about patience and then push. If you're going to land on your heel, having the right appropriate lean with it, having patience. When you first make contact with the ground, having the patience of allowing your body to continue translating forward and then push. Um, that's the way to do it. I like talking about the analogy of a canoe and a paddle and to move forward okay. in a canoe. If I have a paddle, I put the paddle in the water and I push the water backwards to move forward. So that same situation, if someone's pushing back, now we're talking about the landing part. When I put the paddle back in the water, I don't necessarily have to pick the paddle all the way up out of the water each time. That's paying out the interest. If I'm picking the paddle up and then pushing back, it's, just, it's not as necessary. So we can glide more, push back, kind of skim, push back again. So if we're talking about the propulsion phase or we're mainly talking about the landing part, when I go to put that paddle in the water, if also I don't want to shorten up that distance too much, how I get more power and more speed with paddling is I want to get it, capture a little bit more water, push a little bit harder and further back. But if I'm shortening it up and I'm not taking a, a good uh, swoop out in front, I'm just going to be shortening it up a bit. I'm just going to have to work harder is all. So when it comes to the landing part, having the posture, and I don't teach the working on the landing at all because it's really challenging to yes. think about more than one thing. You can't think about more than one thing when you're running. It's just not possible. There's too many variables. And, uh, and so 
Yeah, it, the lean, all I have people work on is mastering that lean and letting the foot strike take care of itself. Okay, so how do we work on the lean? You know, we can only think of one thing at a time while we're running. Tough to think about the lean all the time when we're running. So are we working on that outside of the run? Yeah, I think just like with everything, we kind of reverse engineer, we practice it in isolation, and then we re-integrate uh, it back into the movement. Just like with, remember when we first started driving, it's like, how am I going to be able to do all these things at once? You're consciously thinking about it. But after a while, we start to automate. They become habits. They become systems that our body just knows. So in order to get to that point, we do need to practice it and give us that feedback. There's different ways we can get feedback. Mirror vision, uh, sound or audible, and feeling. So usually when I'm teaching somebody the lean, I've got three different ways. One is just them in a mirror. They're standing next to a mirror, looking straight ahead. And don't look while you're doing it. You only look to check. Otherwise, we're not going to learn from that. And I have them practice standing up tall first. And then when they lean forward, the only motion, the hinging, the only motion is coming at the ankles. And a lot of times as they're doing it, they'll feel themselves want to push down through the balls of their feet and they lift up. They'll feel themselves naturally keep their hips back. And so I'll have them do it pause at the end of the lean and then turn and check. And I tell them, I want that 1230 posture. I don't want you straight up and down. I don't want you hinging at the hips. I want to see, are your shoulders stacked over your hips, over your ankles? If you should look in the mirror, you should see the straight line going through your shoulders, your hips, and your ankles. When you go to lean, you should still see that, that stack. We don't lose that stack, but we're hinging at the ankle. So that's one is teaching them in standing at a mirror and feeling that out without walking yet. The other way I like okay. to do it is with it with a tennis ball necklace. I've got the tennis ball necklace back oh, here. Oh yes, tell us so about that. I so either I will um, you can use just the tennis ball alone, or I fill it with washers for sound, for weight, and for audible feedback. But if I have somebody wearing that tennis ball necklace and it's uh, measured to their belly button height, where it's, it's close to our center mass. So it's if just on lean, a rope, like you're just a, a tennis shoelace. ball on a rope, a shoelace. a shoelace. Okay. Yep. And you measure it out to where the ball is at your belly button. And if you're leaning appropriately, the ball stays in uh, contact with you. If you're leaning, hinging at the hips, the ball gets out in front of you. And that's a lot of times I do that to visualize some of this because it's hard when we're talking about things we can't see, force and gravity. So sometimes to try to visualize these things, I have videos of me side by side, both landing on the heel, same exact landing. But then where I load, we want to load through the midfoot, land on the heel, but I want all my body weight to go through the midfoot for sure. And I show the difference of the ball. If I'm doing it right, the ball keeps going with me. If I'm slowing myself down and breaking, I, I don't like saying overstriding because it's ambiguous, breaking, B-R-A-K-I-N-G, breaking myself, slowing down. If I'm uh, breaking the ball, you'll see in slow motion, the ball keeps going in front of me and I stay back. And so with every mm -hmm. single land, land that we're getting, we're slowing ourselves down. So it's a good way to visualize too, if we're, if we're seeing that, uh, that happen. But um, that's the second way of teaching the lean. The other is um, having people... It depends if you have a coach or not. I'll have like an elastic band to make like a book bag and put it around their shoulders and pull back and say, hey, you feel me? You feel me pulling you back? Don't let it happen. So they kind of lean into it. And first we start with just walking 
and I'm pulling back. And what I'll do is I'll say it's all active learning. It's not just passive. We don't just put shoes on and suddenly we land different. Everything's different. We don't go to bed listening to Spanish. You wake up and I'm fluent. It doesn't work like (laughs) that. I wish it did, but it doesn't. So I'm talking to them the whole time. What I'm doing is I'm pulling that resistance. And what that is telling their brain is, hey, something's pulling me back. I need to engage the muscles that actually work to combat that. And then I take the tension off and I want to maintain it, mimic the mechanics, maintain the same lean, whether I'm pulling or not, pulling or not. So those are the three ways of using it when just learning the the walking or the standing part. But then when it comes to running, that's where I do. I like think of it as like reps. I teach people to run in a parking lot. Usually I have spaces of either 10 or 15 and you're doing laps. You're going down and back. And each time you're resetting, when it comes to mechanics, because you know, if I'm just on a 30 minute run, that's not the time and place to be uh, learning new things. It's a time mm-hmm. to be uh, enforcing new patterns. But while you're running, it's only one, you only like think about it one time when you're doing reps and you do down and back and down and back. So how people walk and maybe use the tennis ball necklace for feedback, make sure they just keep that lean or I'm giving them feedback, but they have to get some kind of feedback during it to know, Hey, you got this. Otherwise they'll never know. Am I leaning appropriately or not? Um, and then I progress into the running from there. And it just depends on how they're doing. Every person's different. Some people get it like that. And some people take a couple sessions, but everybody gets it eventually but it doesn't happen if you don't work at it. Right, right. So the tennis ball necklace thing, I really want to, I really want to go back to because this is something that's, you know, cheap and simple that anyone can do at home. So you mm-hmm. you take a tennis ball, you poke a hole in it, you tie it to a shoelace, you put it around your neck, and you can go for a run. I guess start start walking first and really practice that as feedback. So is that what you're saying? Like anybody can go do this, even if they don't have a coach or another person. Yeah. And for the first year, I have like a free course out there and I can send you the link where I teach you how to make yeah, it. But most people, they just want to buy it. Like people are like, can you just sell these? So I started finally selling them because people were like, we're all lazy. We don't want to like get the supplies. It's just, I'll pay the extra <laughs> money for the ball. Like, okay, if that's what you want. But I do have, we're on your own. I call it a, a, a tennis ball necklace experience where I'm also, I have a separate like private podcast where I'm in people's ear so I'm like with them while they're doing it. I'm like talking them through. I'm coaching through. All right, put your tennis ball necklace on. Let's, and I'm doing it with them. Let's jump up and down a couple of times. You feel how that feels when it hits you. Let's try to avoid that and, and change your body mechanics such that you don't have that, that up and down movement. But definitely people can do it on their own. I've went as far as to um, have courses out now where I have a GoPro on my head, a GoPro on my chest. I show what the, and a microphone on the ball. I show what the ball should do when you run and then how to troubleshoot of, Hey, the ball is so loud or the ball is hitting me side to side. What could I be doing and how to like change their mechanics or interpret their mechanics based off of what the ball is doing. And it just gives us that external feedback of what's going on so we can actually learn, learn things. Okay. That is all super fun. Yeah. Be sure to give me all the links. We'll put it in the show notes so that, you know, if you want to make your own or buy your own tennis ball necklace, I think this is a super cool idea. So just give me it all and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes for everybody. So, um, I'd love to do a quick, uh, uh, turn into shoes. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't need to talk about specific brands or anything like that, but you know, heel strikers, mid strikers, 
four foot strikers. We haven't talked about them um, yet. Should we be wearing all different shoes, you know, different heights, different stacks, you know, minimalist versus maximalist? Uh, what's your thought on, on that? That, that is where it is a little bit more uh, dependent on the person and not just the person and their anatomy, but what distances are they training for? What surfaces are they training on? So I like to kind of think about what's the, the least amount of protection that we can get, meaning just like if I were to punch a wall, I'm not wearing anything. It doesn't feel great. So I want to have a boxing glove on. And the nice thing is if I have too much cushion, though, I don't feel it as much. I'm not going to get it's going to absorb. So I can't run as fast. Too much cushion on a shoe. It helps to protect the joints. It pads the joints. It's like extra cartilage on the bottom of your foot. But at the expense of it's absorbing some of that force, but we need that force to go faster. So it is taking away some of our um, our, our speed. So I usually think, all right, is this person interested in a PR or are they combating these injuries? And what age are they? Do they have history of running for a long time, knee pain, like loading type issues? Then I want to give them a little bit more protection and have more cushioning of the shoe. I like to say that it's it's cheaper to replace your shoes than your knees. And it's true. <laughs> yes, we can just yes. throw those, get a new one out, but your knees, you got the same ones. So um, the one thing I like to think about is the cushion. What can we get away with? And if someone um, depends on their body height, their size, so cushion is one aspect. I see what's the least amount of cushion we can get away with for this person. With the other, I think of like a box length, width, and height. The one thing that will cause injury is if the shoe doesn't fit. And the sure. most common is most people can get the, the length right, but the width, like there's a natural splaying and even fluid, like our feet can change sizes when we move. Um if I have a shoe that doesn't allow the natural splaying of the shoe, if it's too narrow, that can definitely cause some. So I like having people do a simple trick where they take the sole of the shoe out, they put it on the ground, and then they stand on it barefoot. And they see, they trace around it, you fall within the confines of that sole. If you're spilling out over it, then it's probably too narrow for you. So mm, far for the the width. Now the main one, the stack height or the heel height, you know, the, the zero drop is the same height from the heel to the forefoot. We can see 12 millimeters. We can see zero. This is where it also depends. If I am going to have somebody go to a zero drop, I have to know that their heel is going to be sitting lower. And when their heel is sitting lower, what does that do? It puts more tension through their calf. It puts more tension through their Achilles. And so it depends on their age. Do they work in heels? Have they not used to being flat at all? Our body and our tissues don't like quick changes in anything. Uh, length is so if we go from used to wearing a heel, even just a normal shoe to a zero drop, as a physical therapist, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come in. And it's always a delicate conversation because they, they like their new shoes because they're cushioned. They have never had cushion before, but they're more of a zero drop. And like, when did this pain start? About four months ago. When did you get the shoes? About four months ago. It's a coincidence. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't the shoes. And so I have to like kind of delicately show them. Do you see what, how that feels? I'll even do tests where I have them, you know, put some risers under their heels, squat. How does that feel? Take them away. Oh, I feel more tension through my calf. So, um, the range of motion can play a big feature. Uh, I will say there's another test that I do and I can send a link. It's called the, the, the wall test for ankle mobility. 
And basically what we're doing is we're seeing when you land, when your foot's on the ground, the ability of your knee to go past your toe. If I look straight down, keeping my foot flat, my knee going past the toe, that's called dorsiflexion. If someone doesn't have that motion, if they go up to the wall and they can't do three finger widths away, they put three fingers away from the wall, they put their foot down straight, and they see, can you tap the knee to the wall, keeping the heel down? If the heel comes up, it's too tight. If someone can't pass that, they have no business wearing a zero drop because they don't have the motion that they need. And I'll do have an aha moment for people sometimes if they're restricted in that and I put a little riser under their heel, you can go further because it takes right. you out of some of that position. So the, the stack height, the heel height is uh, the other thing, just to be cautious. If somebody's going to drop to a zero drop, they better have really good reasons. And the only reason I can think of that people will say is it helps to promote more of a midfoot strike. But as we've talked about, that doesn't necessarily, we can teach landing. Even if you did want to teach and learn a midfoot strike, just having a shoe is not going to be the be all end all of passive learning to do it. So hopefully mm-hmm. that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. So much good stuff in there. So uh, this is something that I um, heard the other day that uh, one of my athletes came to me and asked, um, you know, about what kind of shoe she should wear for her marathon. And then she talked about, oh, well, I have to break it in first. And to me, whenever I hear that, I say, if you have to break in a shoe, it's not the right shoe for you. So do you agree or disagree? Yeah, no, I agree with that. It shouldn't be, it, it, it's not, it may be getting used to something new on your foot, but not a breaking in. Like it should feel comfortable. It should feel good. And oftentimes I'll have people go to the shoe store, bring their old shoe, put the new shoe on one, one foot on each, like, and just feel it out. But yeah, if it's like breaking it in, that's usually not the right fit, but we'll kind of justify that sometimes like, Oh no, this is good. I like this color. It was a, it was a sexy color. I love this. (laughs) I want to be seen in this. And so they'll justify anything, but yeah, if you have to break it in, that's not, that's typically not a good sign. Yes. Okay, good. I'm validated here. (laughs) So, um, what questions about running mechanics are still unanswered? What kind of research would you like to see done in the future? So that's where it's amazing how there's so much like so many different opinions out there. But I will say like what I'm doing now, like after physical therapy school, you graduate, you know, a little bit about a lot of different things. And then there's continuing education. I want to learn about dry needling. I go to this provider. I want to learn about uh, manipulation. This provider, there's no provider for running. There's no, there's no physical therapist that has like dedicated their career to what they do of teaching running. And some of it's because of the mechanics. We just didn't really understand it. And it took the pandemic and me obsessing and reverse engineering over and over and over again. I'm still learning and learn in action. Um, I want to be that provider of go-to for mechanics, but I've got big dreams as far as we got to get this information in the schools. Like when kids are young, teach them how to stand, how to lean, how to walk, and then how to run. Um, but as far as the research goes, I'm actually teaming up. I went to the University of Dayton in Ohio. And uh, one of my favorite professors, who is a biomechanical nerd like me, my last name is my nerd. I'm, I'm a nerd. Um, I've, been in touch with, I've been in touch with him and I'm actually going to do research at my old school. So I'm going to go there in November. They're going to have um, all the cameras and the force plates and markers on me. We're going to establish some baseline and then we're going to do some research. We're going to have people either trained in the method or not trained in the method and look at the force plates. What's the amount of force that they're dealing with? What's the the rate that they're getting with the force? What are their 
the heart rate response and just doing a bunch of different research. And the way I set it up to be systematic to teach it, it's better for research to be able to see like step by step, like a recipe. So I created a, a cookbook, an instruction manual for how to run, and we'll see uh, we'll see how how far it goes. But it's been great uh, to see some of the response from either people. Uh, runners themselves or teaching the teachers. And that's why I kind of stepped away to try to make the biggest impact. If I can only see a couple thousand people over the next 30 years of working, if I treat or help you know a thousand teachers and they all help thousands of people, I can feel purpose. I can feel more uh, of a reason. So that's my big goal. I think there's definitely research. I want to show that it is, it's less stress. It's just less stress on your body at similar speeds and can that be just enough to stay under the injury threshold and people to do what they love and not get injured and not have these nagging injuries and I'm tired of seeing people when they're already injured and we could have done something earlier like that's what I'm trying to do I'm trying to get this stuff out there earlier before people are injured which is easier said than done because we don't appreciate yeah. things until we lose them or people don't care about <laughs> uh, not getting injured until they're older and like, man, I wish I knew this stuff back in the day. Well, most of you wouldn't have listened back in the day. So we have to build it into what we do. So yes, uh, yes that's it. <laughs> yeah, very, very true. So I think that's a perfect place to kind of wrap this up. So Matt, where can listeners connect with you? So I... I started off on the Instagram. I started off with just the videos. So it depends what you like. If you like a uh, shorter form, quick videos, Instagram, I've got minute or less, uh, learn dot to the number two dot run. If you want to hear me more lecture, uh, YouTube, learn to learn to run. Um, and then I have a podcast out too, the learn to run with Dr. Matt Minard and, um, that's another way I'm on all you know major uh, podcasts too. So those are the main ways that you can uh, you can find me, and I'd be happy to help anybody in any capacity. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for sharing your expertise and being on the Planet Runner today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Matt has a lot of great tools that you can get for free in the show notes or at theplanetedrunner.com slash podcast, including the ankle mobility test and how to make your own tennis ball necklace. So be sure to head there if you want to grab those. And now it's time for the Mental Strength Minute. Fortify your mind in 60 seconds or less. Today's topic is trust your training. This is a phrase that coaches use a lot to soothe nervous athletes because it works. If you have followed a training plan, even if you weren't perfect with it, you will need to trust that you've done enough work. If you're brand new to running, this might be tougher, but once you've been at it a while, you can trust that the work that you have done over the months and years has gotten you to a level of fitness and experience that you can rely on. When you trust in something, valid or not, you can let go of the worry which isn't serving you and can hurt performance. This is not false hope for a miracle. Trust in your training is a release valve for self-imposed pressure. Take a deep breath and go do what you're trained to do. Thank you so much for listening to the Planted Runner podcast. The ability for me to make this show absolutely depends on the amount of listens, downloads, reviews on Apple Podcasts, and ratings on Spotify. 
I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Every time you listen to an episode for 10 seconds, that counts as a listen. So I won't be mad at you if you want to listen to the first 10 seconds of this episode again and again and again, or all the episodes so far if you're a super fan. It's the little things that truly can make a difference. I also want to mention that you can get my free ultimate fueling guide for runners when you sign up for my weekly updates where I share stories and tips that I don't share anywhere else. Join us today at theplantedrunner.com slash join. Have a great run today. Hear Her Sports is a podcast for everyone who loves stories by and about women striving to improve and make a difference in their lives. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery, a former professional cyclist. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in the business of sport through a thoughtful conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. My guests and I explore the glorious and frustrating issues in sports, history, equity, training, nutrition, and so much more. Join us for inspiration, for community, and for love of being a strong athletic woman.